Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. You're listening to the We Podcast, and I'm your host, Sarah Menares. I believe that we all need a space to speak our authentic truth, as well as a space to hear the truths of real and vulnerable people so that we can better understand that we are not alone. Hearing the experiences of others encourages us to step into the light in our own lives. It is through owning our stories and learning to speak our truth that we are able to grow and rise above the challenges we face and step into the full power of all we were created to be. You will hear many topics discussed in this space with people from all over the world. We hope that you feel welcomed into a community of growth and that this space will invite you to uncover the absolute greatness that is already inside of you. Oh, and don't forget, check out all the We Podcast episodes as well as the We Spot blog over at thewespot.com. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hey there, it's me. You're listening to episode number 79, understanding that our stories matter and nothing is ever wasted, even the hard. In this episode, I get to chat with Crystal Lorenzo. Crystal lives with her handy Honduran husband and two rescue kitties in their fixer-upper house o' dreams in the making. She balances the nagging pressure of full-time corporate hustle with making the most of every opportunity by pairing work, travel, and adventure to foster connection with story-filled people in everyday spaces. Crystal moonlights as a writer for others about being present throughout life in the messy middle. Her desire is both to remember and to remind us that there is beauty in every step of this journey meant to be walked out in community. She invites us to sojourn with her in learning to trust that our past and present struggles are never wasted. Her words speak to support others in reflecting how in due time everything will work together for good and make for stories worth sharing to help others embrace the everyday splendor of their own journeys. We talk in this episode about Crystal's devastating experience of losing her mom at a young age, her struggle at one point in her life with her her mental health, um, meeting her husband, and how she's walked through the hard in her life. Crystal has a heart of gold and a true desire to lift others. I can't wait for you to listen. So here we go. Here's my interview with Crystal. Welcome to this episode of the WE Podcast. I'm very excited to have the amazing Crystal Lorenzo here with me today. And we're going to have an awesome conversation that I know will touch many of you. Crystal is one of the amazing writers for the We Spot blog. And so I've been able to get to know her a bit through her writing and that platform. But I have to say that I'm really excited today to dive in and get to know you better in this space and get to actually just talk with you and hear all about kind of what's brought you to where you are today. So thank you so much for, first of all, being an amazing writer for The Wee Spot, but also thank you for being here today and and being willing to share your story with us. Thank you. I'm excited to chat. Yay. All right. 
So we met online essentially, right? I yeah. mean, are you a part of another writing group? Is that how we found you or you found us, I guess? Yeah. So I am a hope writer and I'm also part of Flourish Writers Academy. And so I believe there had been a message posted out on hope writers to say, Hey, we're calling for new contributing writers. And I thought might as well. Yeah. And assumed I would never hear anything back. And I actually thought the email that I received from you all was spam. Like just, Oh, I must've signed up by mistake for their newsletter or something. Oh. And I almost deleted but something in the first sentence caught my attention and I opened it and I read it four times before I believed it because oh. there's no way. And sure enough, it happened. Yay. <laughs> Here you are. <laughs> oh, well, it was an easy choice to bring you on for sure. So I'm glad you didn't delete it. <laughs> there's a lesson, right? Right off the bat, read your emails. Don't delete them. <laughs> All right. So let's just kind of dive in. You know, I know you know kind of what the premise of the podcast is and sharing your heart, speaking your truth. And and so I'd love to have you kind of just start out and tell us a little bit about who you are and where your story begins. Yeah. So I am a native to North Carolina, first generation. My parents were born up in Pennsylvania and Indiana and um, both were looking to escape cold weather, and so they moved down to Miami, which has nothing to do with North Carolina. And then through a series of crazy events and some death threats and other things on my dad, because he was part of the Coast Guard in the 70s with all the drug stuff. Oh, wow. Um, running between Cuba and Miami. I mean, it was just a hotbed. And so we had to get out. And my mom ended up following him, and they moved to Dallas, Texas, got married, and then sort of started life fresh and then eventually ended up moving to North Carolina for a business opportunity that my dad took on. And, you know, five years later I was born. So that's how North Carolina is a part of our family's story, kind of a series of crazy events that led my parents here. It's been a real gift to grow up in this state uh, and went to college here in North Carolina, but up in the mountains, my dad said he would pay the going in-state tuition rate for any public school. And I thought, well, I don't want college debt. So I will um, go to a North Carolina state school. We have 16 options here in the state of North Carolina. So plenty oh, wow. of choices to pick from. Yeah. And yeah, so it's it's just been a really cool place to grow up. I've never lived in any other state outside of North Carolina, but I've lived in two other countries, which is kind of fun. That is fun. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about those. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you went to college. What did you go to college for? So I studied international business and Spanish. I ended up getting a double major because of my study abroad program. It just worked out for me to get a second major. And then I minored in teaching English as a second language. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. So let's go back to the beginning of earlier in your story where I know something happened that probably kind of molded in a big way the rest of your story moving forward. Do you feel comfortable talking about that? Sure. Yeah. So my parents had another child after I was born. So I have a younger sister and the four of us were just living, living our lives. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She cared for my sister and I as amazing stay-at-home moms do. And so she was always there for everything that we needed. Just an amazing 
mom and just adored everything about being at home with us. And yeah, I don't remember a crazy ton about my childhood other than that, as far as I can remember, it was, it was pretty happy. And then one day everything just completely was like ripped out from under us. And that day I remember very, very well. So my mom took us out. We were just having a girl's day with the three of us. And we went out for lunch at one of our favorite restaurants in the next town over. My dad was actually down at a nearby lake and he was working to get a brand new boat that he had just bought for our family ready so that we could spend the summers out there and just really have fun out on the water and making memories as a family. And so my mom and sister and I were having lunch and literally as soon as we finished eating, I just remember seeing, and I was eight, my sister was four. I just remember seeing suddenly like all the color just drained out of her face mm-hmm. and her eyes rolled back in her head and she just fell and she slammed her head on the table. Mm-hmm. And then there was just blood everywhere. And nobody knew what would happen. I just remember this huge collection of people just literally like surrounded us. And of course, we were in a restaurant. It's not like we were surrounded by friends and family. These were strangers. Mm -hmm. And all I remember is that my mom was lying on the floor and there was just blood gushing out of her head. And, you know, I hear people saying, let's call 911. You know, we've got to get the paramedics here. And it was a really hot day. So people were starting to mumble and murmur and say things like, maybe it's just heat stroke. You know, we've got to stop the bleeding. And there my sister and I are standing and and just, we don't, we don't know what to do. You know, you've got an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. My sister starts crying. All of a sudden I'm the one in charge and there's all these strangers asking me questions. And, Mm -hmm. um, and somebody asked me and I went to my mom's purse, find my dad's phone number, because back in the day, people didn't have cell phones. Like, you know, it's not like everyone had an iPhone or something. So I went to my mom's purse and she had a little um, like spiral notepad and my dad's phone number was written on that spiral notepad. Mm. He had one of those like phone in a bags or something, I think with him uh, or somebody might've run down from the Marina. Somehow we managed to contact him from the restaurant and I don't know how it happened. There are times in life where we experience miracles that, you know, don't necessarily make sense at the time, but looking back, you're like, that has to have been God because my dad was 45 minutes away. He got there in six minutes. I can't explain it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that happened. He beat the ambulance there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, And so police took us outside um, to try to calm us down and question us. And that way we wouldn't see my mom being loaded onto the stretcher and into the ambulance. And my dad rode with her to the hospital and he, somebody had called some friends of my parents and they came and picked us up. And I remember they took us to the pool and it just seemed so strange. Like, why can't we go with our parents? You know, why, what's happening? What's wrong? I, I don't get it. And so they took us to the pool and we went and we had lunch and we had dinner and like, didn't hear anything from our parents. And I just kept thinking my mom, like, is she going to be okay? Like, is she going to have a big hole in her head from, you know, hitting Mm. her head on the table? Like, am I going to, is she going to look funny the rest Mm. of her life? Or maybe she'll walk funny or talk funny or, you know, maybe something will be different now. And later that night, it was, felt like it had been weeks. (laughs) I mean, it was such a long day. My dad came home and he sat on the floor in the living room and he just said, girls, I need you to come. I have something really difficult to share with you. And we just, we were small enough that we could both sit on his lap. 
And he said, your mom's not coming home. Hmm. She's gone. And he said, I did everything that I could. And he was a, um, I mean, he was a trained paramedic. Hmm. It's not like my dad just was a bystander. The doctors told us that my dad spent over an hour trying to resuscitate her. And eventually they literally had to pull him off of her Hmm. and restrain him because he just couldn't, he couldn't accept that she was gone. And so they did an autopsy. And the doctors determined that it had been uh, due to mitral valve prolapse. She had a heart attack Mm. and there was nothing else wrong with her. She was perfectly healthy. Um, There were no warning signs. She was just gone in an instant. The the doctor confirmed that she was dead before she hit the floor. So she didn't even feel that head wound. Mm. And Mm. that was just a a body response that you get hit and you, you know, the blood releases and head wounds always bleed really badly. Mm-hmm. So that um, put us on a crazy course because again, my mom had stayed at home with us. You know, we didn't have built-in childcare. We didn't have um, after-school care. And I remember we were just surrounded by family, by friends, by community, neighbors. There were neighbors that all the way up through high school, literally after school, we would go over there. Some of them would make meals and then drop us off at home, or my dad would come and pick us up. I mean, the community was just incredible. And we ended up, uh, my dad put an ad in the newspaper. We had different nannies over the years. And, you know, we just sort of pieced things together. We had to figure out a way to survive, the three of us. We didn't have a choice. I mean, that's, those are the cards that were dealt to us. Wow. Oh, that, I can't even imagine having to experience that at eight years old. I, my heart is, you made me cry. I'm trying not to cry over here, (laughs) but thank you for being so vulnerable and for sharing that. It's heartbreaking. I, I can't even, I just can't even wrap my head around being eight and experiencing that and seeing that and having to go through that. And not only at eight, but I'm sure for years to come, it did mold things quite differently moving forward for you and your family. Absolutely. I mean, it affects everything that I do. And I think it's very much something that I will always carry with me. I mean, grief morphs over time. It never leaves. It never, you're never free of it, especially when it's over a relationship that's irreplaceable. Yeah, that's important to know, I think, that it it doesn't ever fully go away, but it changes. It does. Mm-hmm. And I think um, something that I've learned, because I've spent a lot of time thankful, well, I'm thankful to my father that he saw the writing on the wall and said, my girls need help. They need they need emotional and, and mental support because this is it's too much, it's too traumatic. And so he got us into therapy right away. And... I remember from a very early time, the counselors would tell us every single milestone in your lives, you're going to have to regrieve the loss of your mother. So when you graduate, when you get married, if you have children, your children growing up, you're going to grieve that they don't, they won't have the opportunity to get to know their grandmother. You're going to grieve in every season. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that this has to define your life, but you will have to revisit this if you want to stay healthy. Yeah. You can't just pretend that it doesn't affect you. Right. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was such an important thing to know that that's something you will continually come back to. Cause yeah, I think with grief, people have this expectation, well, a certain amount of time passes and then it's just fine. Right. Like you're just right. 
supposed to be fine, move forward. Yeah, that's not, <laughs> that's not realistic. That's not, and I don't think that's the way we want it to be because we want to continue to remember the people that we lost and that we love. And I think we could get into a whole conversation about grief, but I won't, <laughs> we won't go down that road, <laughs> but that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So growing up then it, you were raised by your dad. I love how you talk about the community support, which sounds like it was so important. Absolutely. It was. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where we would be in life without those incredible neighbors. And, you know, we had a smattering of different nannies over the years. Some were awesome, some not so great. Mm -hmm. um, it was a, a wide mixture of different experiences of women. We sort of had this revolving door of nannies that just for varying reasons over the years, some of them left of their own, you know, free will because it was, you know, they were getting married or moving or something was changing in their lives or, um, it's, they just weren't the right fit in whatever season for our family anymore. And then we had a cousin that lived with us for a little while and we had some other folks that kind of came in and out and it was really beautiful, especially with my cousin, because he, he needed us as much as we needed him. Mm. You know, he was going through a hard season and, and needed a change moving down from Pennsylvania where of course my dad grew up and it was just really beautiful to have almost this older brother. And to this day, you know, just really having a special relationship with him. So we kind of had this odd family blend, but it just, it just worked somehow. I mean, it was just a gift. Mm. So let's fast forward a few years and you went to college. It sounds like there were some pivotal moments then from, from then moving forward, would you say? Yeah, no, there was, um, there was definitely a lot of, of things that happened. Like I said, we just had a revolving door of a lot of caretakers coming in and out of the house. And some of them just had some of their own struggles and that created issues for my sister and I, and certainly for my dad. And we just had some years where things weren't very stable and there were some issues there. And so, you know, for me, it was one of those things where I wasn't sure, does it make sense for me to leave my dad and my sister? Do I need to stay here and protect them? Because there's that whole, I'm the woman of the house. I have to, I have mm. to keep everybody safe. And, you know, I'm eight years old, then nine years old, and then 10 and then 18. And over the years, I'm in charge here. I, my dad needs me to be strong. And I knew that my dad would suffer. That, that's how I felt, at least. If I left, he might miss me or maybe my sister would need something and I wouldn't be there to take care of her. And so I was just going to go to community college and stay at home. And my dad, again, in great parental and sacrificial wisdom, he said, no, kid, you got to spread your wings and fly. You got to go. He said, I'm a grown up. I can handle it. I've gotten you this far. I can get your sister taken care of too. And, you know, he just was, was so, he pushed me so hard, but in such healthy ways, you know, he, he didn't want me to hold myself back and, and feel like I needed to take care of everything and be more of an adult than where I actually was in life. Hmm. And that's one of the most beautiful, priceless gifts that I think any parent could give to their children yeah. that, you know, he would have obviously much preferred to keep me at home keep me living at home. Community college would have been a lot cheaper for his budget. Mm -hmm. You know, I could have gotten a job and helped pay for it. And he said, no, you're going to go because you need this. You need to go out and start your life. Very insightful on yeah. his part. Yeah. Yeah, man. I know as a parent, that's got to be a hard choice, but best good 
choice for, for you. And so you left and went to college then? I did. Yeah, I moved three hours away from home and started school and lots of things started to shift for me. I suddenly felt free of, it was as though there had been a bit of distance because I'd grown up in the same town my whole life. I grew up, I was born in one house and then my family literally moved 10 minutes down the road to build a bigger house <laughs> so that we'd have room for the four of us because my parents had just had like a little one bedroom, like 600 square foot house or something when they first got married. They moved down the road and I grew up from the time I was basically two until I left for college in that same house. So I lived in a very small bubble and going off to college was really an opportunity for a fresh start. So you said in college, you kind of, uh, a shift for you was learning about God. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was raised in a home that basically their theology was if you're a good person, you go to heaven. There's, there's no other framework. Um, I was baptized as an infant, but my family didn't go to church unless we were with my grandparents, which was maybe once or twice a year. They lived in Florida at the time. Uh, they had moved from Pennsylvania down to Florida when they retired. So I got to college and I had been taught by some significant people in my life that I really thought I could look up to and trust that church was a cult and that they were just going to steal your money. And I assumed that that's what church represented. And so it was very scary to me when I got a roommate my freshman year of college who said, hey, let's go to church. And I'm like, who are you? And what are you, what are you going to try to, are you going to try to manipulate me in some way? What, what exactly do you want with me? And, you know, it took her a while, I think, to drag it out of me because she's like, why are you being so weird? She was a really nice girl, but eventually her and a group of other folks from my dorm, I was in a, like a summer preview program. So it wasn't the full on fall semester of freshman year yet. We kind of got up there and you got a taste of college, which I think was the best thing I could have done because again, it it got me out of my little bubble that much sooner and gave me sort of a soft entry into university life. I learned my way around campus. I figured out all that stuff. So anyways, my friend, my, my new friends, said, well, you know, we really like you and we want you to hang out with us. And by the way, we're starting a Bible study and it's usually going to be in y'all's dorm room. And I'm thinking, great. So now I've got to go find somewhere else to go hang out. And there's going to be all these Bible (laughs) reading people like sitting on my bed and using my stuff. And Mm -hmm. they said, well, we'll meet in the lobby sometimes too, but you should totally come. And they kept pestering me. And then they would say, well, come to church with us. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. People that go to church are crazy. And and the rest of you are just brainwashed. Like you seem like really nice people. And they just kept pushing me. And they said, Crystal, we really like you. We're not going to, we're not going to stop asking you until you at least give it a try. We think that, you know, you've been told wrong. And maybe there are some churches like that out there that do try to take advantage of people, but that should not be your view of church and faith communities as a whole. You need to get past that. And so they just said, we're not giving up on you. Whether you want to go to church or not, we're still going to be your friend. That's not going to define our friendship, but we know that this can be a really good thing to encourage you in your life. And so they kept pushing me and it probably took about three months and I went to church and it's not like I, all of a sudden the skills are pulled off of my eyes and life was amazing. And I was like, oh man, God is awesome. And I'm going to do this thing. And I just started just like slowly learning a little bit more about God and thought, well, this 
kind of interesting. These people definitely don't seem like they're after my money or, you know, some crazy people. They just seem like really nice people who have this beautiful message of love and forgiveness to share. And, you know, that we're kind of all hot messes inside. And I'm like, my dad's put me through enough therapy that I think I can agree with that, you know, kind <laughs> of sentiment here. <laughs> so uh, fast forward a few more months and I was invited to go on a retreat with the university students and something in me just sort of clicked as I was sitting there and listening to things. And I pulled the leader of the college class aside after the kind of the session. And there was some free time. Some people went back to the cabins and took naps. Other people went hiking or went out to play like, you know, soccer or whatever with different groups of friends. And I just really felt strongly that I wanted to talk to the leader of, or the wife of the leader of our college class and so I went into the kitchen and offered to help her wash dishes because I was like, I feel awkward just being like, hey, will you sit and talk to me? So I thought maybe if I help out, we can mm. start a conversation and <laughs> I can get to know her a little bit. And we probably spent a good four hours talking just wow. the entire break. And she actually shared with me that she had lost her mom around the same age as when I lost my mom. Oh, and wow. And also the oldest of her siblings. She had a few more siblings than I uh, mm-hmm. do, but regardless, our stories were very similar. And she just carried this huge chip on her shoulder for a long time. And in her case, she knew about God from a young age. And so she was just angry with God and didn't understand all of these things. And so she got to a point eventually where she said, Hey, Crystal, you know, you've come so far. Don't you want to give God the opportunity to really work in your life? And, and of course that was all like gibberish to me. I didn't, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't know about the Bible. I didn't know anything about biblical stories or faith or joy or all of these other things that are part of having a faithful walk that follows Jesus. And so I just said, I don't understand what you're saying. Can you break it down? And so she did. And then I said, well, okay, so you're asking me to follow this Jesus, but I don't know him. I don't know everything about him. And so we talked a little bit longer and this was all kind of within that four hour span. And she basically explained to me that you don't have all the answers, just like we don't have all of the answers in life. You don't know what's coming right around the corner. Sometimes we just have to take a step out and we have to trust. We have to either hold out our hand or take the next step and trust that our path will be lighted. And something in me again, just, just clicked. And I thought, wow. And then three hours later, we're having sort of this night of what I later learned was called like testimonial night. And Roger, the leader of the group, which is Denise's husband, has me get up and he says, all right, Crystal, I want you to talk about what happened this afternoon. And I was like, what do you mean what happened this afternoon? And so I'm sitting up there blubbering like an idiot and telling the story of how I said, you know what, I've, I've decided I don't exactly know what this means, but I've decided to follow Jesus and I'm going to give him my life and just see where this goes. And that that did radically shift. I mean, it was February of 2004 and I was just shy of turning 19 years old. And it's, it's been a whirlwind since then, but a beautiful whirlwind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think too, that that is good evidence that with God, nothing is wasted, Mm -hmm. that he gives us a story for a reason. And so one of the things that's brought me great comfort over the years since 1993 when I lost my mom is just this sense of God's not going to waste this story 
And he has given me these beautiful moments, whether it's someone else who's lost their mom or another significant relationship in their lives, or even just suffered something that really sucks. They've Mm -hmm. just had a really hard go of it in life. I understand the emotion behind it, even if I haven't had the same experience. Right. And it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to be able to speak from a place of compassion and Mm -hmm. to know that I can understand them and they can appreciate what I've walked through, even though our our paths may look very different. The sentiment and the rawness is the same. Yeah. I love that. It's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Pain is pain. And when we know pain, we can, we connect through our pain, I think. And it's such a deeper way. It's much more authentic and you Mm -hmm. can build relationships, whether it's, you know, an hour long bus ride or you have a relationship with someone for the rest of your life you can get to deep meaningful places much more quickly and effectively because you know that life has such value and you've got to make the most of every moment mm-hmm. yeah i love that it's powerful thank you okay let's talk about you leaving and studying abroad going to spain or oh you studied abroad in spain and then you moved to honduras right yeah so i moved to spain my junior year of college and studied spanish and studied international business and just really had an incredible opportunity i was there for ten and a half months so two semesters in Alicante, España, which is on the coast of Spain. And it's about a five-hour train ride east of Madrid, four hours south of Barcelona. I was a 25-minute walk from the beach. Wow, nice. Far cry from where I live in North Carolina, which (laughs) I'm two and a half hours from the beach. So I still have, the beach is close and I get to go often. But to actually be able to walk to the beach was amazing. I could walk anywhere in the city. And I grew up in suburbia. If you've seen the movie Pleasantville, that's kind mm-hmm. of like the neighborhood where I grew up. Everything is just beautiful and nicely manicured. And life is just happy and good where mm-hmm. I grew up. But in Spain, where I lived, you had high rises. Like I lived on the sixth floor of an apartment building. There were cars honking at all hours of the day and night. It was the desert. Like it was vastly different from anything that I had experienced, which was just what I needed. Because again, I knew that I was made to spread my wings and fly. And Mm -hmm. my dad gave me every opportunity that he could to go out and do it. Mm -hmm. And so I also knew that as a new follower of Christ and not knowing a single soul in this city and not speaking very much Spanish at all, that for me, it was really important to find a church. So I started reaching out and I found some missionaries in Africa And they connected me with some missionaries in Turkey. And the Turkish missionaries said, hey, we have this contact in Spain and in Madrid who might be able to connect you with someone local. And sure enough, they found me this church. And I showed up first or second Sunday in Spain, not knowing anything. I I was literally shaking. I was so nervous because I thought, these people talk to me. I can't even talk to them. What am I doing here? (laughs) And it was actually really hard because the people there did not want me. It was Mm. a very almost hostile environment in the sense that they didn't want outsiders. And through the course of time, I just felt very strongly that God had a purpose for me there. And there were a couple of other foreigners that showed up, non-Spanish people, people from Spain or not from Spain. And we sort of formed this little band of, of friends. 
And we were like, we're in this together. We feel that God has a plan for us at this church to influence for good. And these people are so closed because it's been this way for hundreds of years. Like you're born into this church, you grow up in this church, you die in this church. There's no outreach, there's no community, anything. And so we started a Bible study and we would go out dancing and have fun on the weekends. And they never invited us to anything, but we invited them to all of our stuff. And we said, you guys, come on, let's go have fun. And they would just kind of look at us like, who are you crazy people? You You know, and, and so eventually they started to see how much fun we were having and our group was growing and it was a group of Africans and Americans and other Europeans and Latinos from all parts. I mean, we were a really diverse group of friends and we would have so much fun. Mm -hmm. And eventually they started coming along, but what really changed the trajectory and what really broke down that wall for us was when we said, we're going to have Thanksgiving. So we prepared a Thanksgiving feast and Mm -hmm. we had, they don't eat turkey really in Spain, but we found a lone turkey at the market, another God miracle. And we (laughs) named him Paco Pavo. Pavo means turkey. So his nice. name was Paco, the turkey. He caught on fire in the oven. It was bad. Um, we had all kinds of issues. None of us, there were three Americans that were trying to make this meal. And we figured maybe like five or 10 people would show up because again, nobody liked us. You know, it would be like our friends, the other foreigners would show up and be like, oh, Thanksgiving in America. This is so cool. The pilgrims and the Indians and all this. We had 57 people show up. Wow. One turkey. We had two boxes of stovetop stuffing. We had purchased like a 10 pound sack of potatoes and made probably like the worst mashed potatoes you've ever (laughs) encountered. Um, But again, another miracle. Feeding of the 5,000, every single person rolled out of there and could like barely move. They were so full. We had leftovers. Wow. And from that point forward, it was like the Spanish people didn't care anymore. We were friends. And to this day, I still keep in touch with so many of them. Hmm. Um, And it just broke down those walls because they saw you're willing to invest in us too. You're mm-hmm. here because you you care. And you're not just another one of those study abroad students that comes here and says, oh, everyone needs to speak English because that's you know what I speak. You really want to learn the language and appreciate our culture. And you have something worth sharing with us too. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I love that. So how long were you there for? Just 10 and a half months. Okay. It was short. Yeah. And so I I arrived by myself. And when I left to go to the airport, there were six cars filled with people that took me to the airport. Oh, that's so cool. Dear friends. I mean, I I entered the country as a stranger and I left not wanting to come back to the country that i had always called home Mm. because I really felt like I had found home. Yeah. It's such a testament to the power of putting yourself out of your comfort zone and continuing to show up even when it's hard. Yeah. Well, and sometimes you just know, you know, when you've got to keep pushing for something. Yeah. And to continue to do that and not be discouraged with being met with adversity, I think is huge. Absolutely. If you believe strongly enough, and in this case, it was basically my only option. Mm. There really weren't many churches where I ended up in the city that I was in. Uh, So that was a big part of it. And then it was just the circumstances of how I walked through that into that church sanctuary were just too crazy for it to not have been a God thing. Like Mm -hmm. how I connected, like I said, with people in Africa, then in Turkey and then in Madrid. And then they said, Hey, just go to this address on Sunday morning. Yeah, that's cool. I love it. 
(laughs) So after you graduated from college, you went, you moved to Honduras. I did. Yeah. I went down there. I was part of an international development organization as an intern called Samaritan's Purse. So if um, anyone Mm. has ever seen the, like the Christmas um, shoe boxes that get Mm. sent out that aren't always delivered at Christmas. So that's a, that's a little secret. If you know. <laughs> uh, we call them the Lottie or the, the Christmas shoe boxes, but they're not always given out at Christmas. Cause I was a part of a couple of the deliveries that they did and we did them not at Christmas time. Oh, so that's to- so fun though. Yeah. I've, I've always wanted to know like, or to see, cause we've done shoe boxes quite a bit in the past and seeing like who they actually get to go to and, and if you know, like their faces when they open them and all that. That's really cool that you got to experience that. Oh, it was a bucket list experience for sure. And I got to do it several times, but we did all kinds of work, everything from adult literacy programs to HIV AIDS education. The populate, one of the populations that we worked with down there had an um, HIV positive, AIDS positive rate of around 18% which outside of Africa is basically one of the highest concentrations in the world of HIV AIDS. And unfortunately, that particular community, it's a group of Africans that were being brought over to the United States as slaves back in 17, 1800s. And the ship wrecked and the slaves were able to escape and basically like make this life for themselves in what's now known as Honduras. And so it's still very like culturally isolated community. They've kept very much of their African roots. And they have a lot of um, beliefs because they're not, they don't have a lot of uh, formal education. So they believe by sleeping with a virgin, you can be cured. Those of us that have some education uh, understand that that's not going to cure you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was educating people, don't sleep with your kid. Mm, you know, that's yeah. not going to cure you. That's just going to exacerbate not just the health concern, for your physical, right. body, but it's going to create these chains, these generational cycles. Right. And so one of our goals wow. was to break that. We did reforestation projects. Hurricane Gustav hit while we were down there, and we were able to help around 8,000 families in a matter of a few, it was about a week or so, getting them um, clean drinking water, getting them supplies, dry clothing. We rescued people off of rooftops, the kind wow. of stuff that you see on news and in, in movies, mm-hmm. you know, where the world is ending. That's the kind of stuff that we had the opportunity to do. And then there were days where I would just get to pray with people and encourage them. And I was so encouraged. If anything, I feel guilty that I got to have such a rich experience because those people changed me. You know, the, the average living wage in Honduras is around $5 a day per, per laborer. And when you have a large family, you know, I'd, I'd come across families that had 10 or 12 children, and they would live in a hut that's, you know, the size of, or in some cases, smaller than my bedroom, Mm -hmm. all of them. Mm -hmm. And I just remember there would be times where I was confident that they must have gone without food for the entire day, just to give the gringa something to eat or a nice cold Coca-Cola from the corner. Mm -hmm. I didn't even like, I still don't like Coca-Cola. I don't like the taste of it. I didn't grow up drinking sodas. But I tell you, that was the most delicious beverage I've ever had in my life. Mm. Knowing the sacrifice that those people made and understanding that if I had refused it, that would have been the worst possible insult. That yeah. to, for them to give was truly the greatest gift, mm. no matter what awesome. it cost them. And I was never going to see them again. Mm. And yet they wanted to serve 
pasty foreigner <laughs> in the best way that they could mm-hmm. with the, their very best. That's awesome. So your husband is from Honduras, right? So did you meet him while you were there or what's that story? No, I met him. So I returned from Honduras in December of 2008. I graduated in May of 2008, moved to Honduras in July of 2008. The economy crashed while I was in Honduras. And what I thought was going to be a lifelong or at least several years of serving God, being on mission, living abroad, getting to just live this dream didn't turn out that way. And so I found myself getting on an airplane to come back to the United States, moving back to North Carolina. I had no money, no job, and no place to go other than back to my dad's house, who was living with his girlfriend at the time. And so I moved in with them. And it just, it was really hard because I came home and of course all my friends were off doing great things, living the dream. And I had, like I said, no money, no job, no prospects of anything. And kind of similar to what happened with Spain. I said, I didn't grow up as a Christian, but I really desperately need a community where I can be encouraged. I'm so lonely. I'm so hungry to be encouraged and be around other people that can share hope with me because I I thought I had this all figured out and I'm realizing very quickly that I don't. And, And so I showed up at a Bible study that had been recommended by multiple people to me who did not know each other and started going to that Bible study, they rejected me too, because they said, hey, this is a Bible study for Latinos. You're not, you're not Hispanic. I was like, been there, done that before. You guys can't keep me away. Like I speak (laughs) Spanish. I'll do whatever it takes to be in, but I'm not leaving. God told me I'm supposed to be here. So again, it was one of those things where I just said, I mean, you're going to have to like bar me at the door. You can't keep me from coming in here. I want to be part of this community. I want to invest I want to keep serving the Hispanic population. And so that was, you know, early in 2009. And we still don't remember exactly when we met. It was somewhere in March, April of 2009. Someone lied to the man that is now my husband and told him that they were heading to a party with lots of hot girls. And the friend drove. So literally he got there and he was like, this is the craziest, weirdest party I've ever been to. People are sitting in a circle and talking about God. (laughs) And he was like, I I don't know about all this, but the food was good. I guess he liked the girls there and he didn't have a way to get out of there because his friend had driven him there. And so he stayed and yeah, 10 years later Hmm. or 11 now we've been married for seven. He chased after me hard for four years. Cause I was like, who is this guy? He's like dressed in all black. He's got his nails painted black. He's like, (laughs) a rocker and he's a partier and he's got like lines of women like the kid has legit not just one black book but like multiple black books like I want nothing to do with this guy he's really nice we can be friends but I'm not touching him with a 10-foot pole I've got enough problems in my life and the guy did not leave me alone he would send me flowers like he would call me he was just constantly He would, when I rejected him, he would have friends bring me gifts and tell me they were from him. I mean, he was just, he pulled out all the stops. He quit smoking. He was never a big drinker, which is still surprises me to this day because his father was an alcoholic and just, you know, he threw out all his black books. He did away with a lot of his female friendships and just radically changed how he lived. It was nothing that I asked of him because I wasn't interested in a relationship. I was happy to just be his friend and hang out in groups and, Mm -hmm. you know, be buddies. And all of that, he did 
for me without me prompting it. I didn't even know some of those things until later. I didn't know about the black books and the smoking and the, you know, carousing with girls. I had no idea, but there would be friends, mutual friends that would say, Crystal, like, stay away from this guy. He's dangerous. And like, I'm not interested. I'm not planning to marry the guy. Like we're just hanging out. And I've made it very clear that I want no future with him. And people could see the writing on the wall because he had fallen hard for me. (laughs) And people didn't know what to do with it. So like our pastor was like, stay away from him. And you know, all these, like the leaders of that Bible study where we met at, were like, you guys need to just back it up. This is going nowhere fast. And so again, it was one of those things where, you know, I held out as long as I could. And one day I woke up and I was like, Crystal, you're an idiot. Guys like this don't come along every day. Yeah, you might find somebody else down the road, but this kid is, he's willing to do whatever it takes. And so then it worked out. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of twists and turns. I had um, a couple of years when I got off the mission field where I struggled with some I was uh, diagnosed with some pretty serious uh, mental illness issues. I had severe depression. I had intense anxiety. I struggled with suicide. And all of that, he was my rock. And all of that he did as a friend without asking anything in return. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for talking about that. Like trying to, I mean, are you willing to go a little more into it or... Yeah. Okay. So can you tell us just a little bit more about that and how you kind of walked through that, that period? Honestly, a lot of it I don't remember because it was just so dark. But I think like I had mentioned before, I thought I had my life figured out. I finally figured out what I need in my life is a relationship with God. I need a close relationship with God. I figured that out in college. So check that box. And I'm living that life. I have community. I have relationships. I graduate from college. I go out to the mission field. I'm doing beautiful things, maybe things that most people will never hear about or see or think as significant. But I know that I'm changing lives and, and I'm, I'm, my life is being changed more than anything. And I'm drawing closer to God and, and encouraging other people and, and helping people through really hard times. I get to be a part of this amazing story. And then the economy crashed and I'm, I've got to come home with my tail between my legs. I have nothing to show for myself. Hmm. And something in me just snapped and I started to spiral. And, and I don't even think I recognized that it was happening but it was basically like, my life just seems like a waste. You know, I thought I was going to go out and do these beautiful things. And I was going to live this life of adventure and and move anywhere in the world and, and save the world, at least my little corner of it. And all of a sudden I'm back at home living with my dad and his girlfriend and I have no job prospects and there's just nothing to look forward to. Hmm. And it just seemed like there was no future for me. And it sounds really dramatic to look back and say it that way, but similar to when we go through things, we can't see what lies ahead. We can't see the future. And I just, I felt like I had put myself out there. I'd been given this opportunity and then the world ripped it away from me and Mm -hmm. said, sorry, the economy's crashed. There's not enough funding for you to stay. You have to go home. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like it was, it felt personal, even though I knew it wasn't, it felt personal. So I just really spiraled because I, I didn't know, I'd almost felt like I'd reached the peak. I had, I had done what I was called to do and then I wasn't allowed to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. That had to be really hard. I, I'm sure a lot of your identity was wrapped up in that. 
And so then to have to start over essentially in, in creating what is my identity apart from this. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really rough. And, and somehow I think I managed to hide it from most people, but I also really shielded myself from a lot of friendships. I just sort of pulled back and I went from being a very deep connected person to being very um, isolating and far removed. And I don't even think my family really had a sense of how desperate I was. My now husband, we would be hanging out and he would say, you're not driving home tonight. I'm like, I live 20 minutes from here. And he said, because I don't trust you. Mm. I don't trust you to get yourself home safely. He said, the way that you're talking, that look in your eyes, I think you want out. And he said, I'm not letting you take that out not on my watch. So he would drive me home and come back and pick me up the next morning to get my car. He just, he knew how fragile of a spot I was in and he just walked with me and he admitted to me years later, he said, Crystal, I didn't know how to help you. And he said, it was, I felt like I was dying inside too because here I was that I loved this woman and she was so broken and I couldn't fix her. And I would just beg God, let give, get me free of this woman. She's so broken. I can't fix her. Like just get her away from me. And it was one of those things where he just kept running into the fire, like he just couldn't stay away. He just knew that I needed him. He knew that I needed someone that, that could just be there and ask for nothing in return. Wow. And so honestly, he was the most beautiful picture of Jesus that I've ever seen this side of heaven. I don't mean he's perfect. Marriage has been really hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Marriage has been really hard. And certainly friendship and dating with him was really hard. But he just continued to prove to me over and over again, this idea of sacrificial love. Mm -hmm. That's really And beautiful. he just kept showing up very imperfectly, but he kept being there for me. Mm. Yes. That's, so, oh, I just love that. Like the power in showing up, we don't have to show up perfect. We don't have to show up knowing what to do or the right words to say or any of those things, but just the power in showing up so huge. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Okay. I want to uh, make sure that people know how to find you. And so give us just a quick rundown of kind of what you're doing today. Um, I know you said you're, you're a writer for Hope Writers and, but just let us know kind of what your current life look like now. Yeah. So now my life looks kind of boring in the sense I'm not out saving the world, so to speak. And uh, I work for, I have a very corporate job. I work as a retirement benefits educator. But what I like to tell people, my party line, is that I scare people into saving for the future. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So I get to travel all over the United States now and share about the importance of preparing, of having what one of my colleagues affectionately calls a spending plan, because budgets are dirty words. People mm. get scared of budgets. So what does it look like to have a spending plan? That seems a little less terrifying. And I get to go out and share this incredible message of the fact that you can use money to actually benefit. You don't have to be scared of it. You don't have to let it control your life. But there are ways where you can actually do something you know, beneficial and, and give yourself a sense of security with some advanced planning. Mm -hmm. And so I have the opportunity to do that. That's my 
day job hustle mm -hmm. and I get to rack up airline miles and hotel points and free car rental days, which then feeds my wanderlusting habit to keep traveling the globe on my off time. So my husband and I live in our fixer-upper house with two adorable rescue kittens and hoping for the opportunity to be able to have a family someday. We'll see how that goes. Had some health issues and so kind of waiting to see what happens, where that goes. And for now, loving my little kittens as much as I can and just trying to have as many adventures as I can. And then started writing in May of 2019, I guess officially learning how to write for others, which is a lot harder than I ever imagined it would be. I had no idea. I just thought, well, you just, I've been journaling my whole life. I have a trunk full of journals. Like yeah. one of those like Titanic, like the rich people took on the Titanic. <laughs> I have one of those trunk fulls of journals that are wow. full to bursting. I love to write. And yet all of a sudden I started trying to write for others. Mm -hmm. Game over. It just <laughs> obliterated. I like felt shredded inside. Mm -hmm. So I am in the very beginning stages of learning how to write for others. For now, the only place that you can really find me where there's an archive, so to speak, is um, the We Spot blog. So I'm happy, so thrilled to be a contributing writer. It's that opportunity to just have it on my schedule to have to show up and share a message, which has been such a gift mm. to be able to learn in this community. So that's the place where you can kind of find my writing somewhat consistently. And then of course, um, you can find me on Facebook or you can find me on Instagram. I'm trying to learn how to be more active, trying to figure out the whole Pinterest thing. You can always send me an email. So in awesome. that sense, I'm, I'm pretty uh, basic. <laughs> pretty elementary. I don't have a website or a book published or anything like that, but I love to have authentic conversations and just find community and people that want to be real, not perfect, but real. Yeah. You're amazing. Yes. I will put links in the show notes too. I, I'll put in a link where it's all of your articles that will pull up in the wee spot and for Facebook and Instagram also, because I know that there's people who are going to want to connect with you because I just love how authentically you share from your heart. It's really amazing and encouraging and inspiring. So thank you for that. And I did things a little backwards, so I have to backtrack a little bit. And I didn't ask you my questions that I always ask people. So we'll just flip these around. <laughs> So the first question is, is what has been the most vital to your growth? I think just going back to the idea that with God, nothing is wasted. That has helped me to overcome so much. Losing my mom, walking through some really difficult relationships and some codependency issues with dating through college or through high school and college. Nothing is wasted. And to be able to encourage others in their heart as well. And then walking away from this episode, what do you want to make sure that people know? That their stories matter, no matter how basic they might seem, because my story feels pretty basic. You know, I lost my mom when I was a kid. Why am I still talking about that? You know, mm -hmm. I had some difficult relationships. I had some codependency issues. Now I work a corporate job. It's not, doesn't seem like the most exciting life, but I know there's a lot of beauty in it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm learning as a 35 year old to celebrate that. 
Yeah. And no doubt that lots of people listening to this have gotten so much from hearing you share your story today. So thank you for believing that and thank you for spreading that to everyone else as well, because it really does matter. And it really is important for you to continue to talk about the things that have shaped you and molded you and the struggles that you've walked through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Crystal, so much for being here today. It's been just a joy to be able to get to know you and, and to hear your beautiful heart. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right, my friends, what an awesome interview. We absolutely believe in the power of our stories, and we are so very grateful to our guests who have the courage to speak their truth and share their heart, experiences, and light with all of us. If you want more of the WE podcast, make sure you head over to theweespot.com where you can find all of our episodes as well as the WE Spot blog. The We Spot is your go-to spot for growth, connection, authenticity, and encouragement. You can also find us on social media. Head over to the We Spot Facebook and Instagram pages and get plugged in. You can also find me, Sarah Moneras, on my personal Facebook and Instagram pages as well. If you love the We Podcast, we would be thrilled for you to rate the podcast and write us a review. We want as many people as possible to be lifted up in growth and get connected with our community. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes dropping every single week. We can't wait to see you over on social media. Thank you for being here today. It means a lot to us. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, grow constantly, rise above, and always know you are not on this journey alone. See you next time.